This is episode number 275 with machine learning research scientist John Langford. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. This podcast is brought to you by Blue Life AI. Blue Life AI is a company that empowers businesses to make massive profits by leveraging artificial intelligence at no upfront cost. That's correct. You heard it right. We are so sure about artificial intelligence that we will create a customized AI solution for you and you won't need to pay unless it actually adds massive value to your business. So if you're interested to try out artificial intelligence in your business, go to www.bluelife.ai, fill in the form and we'll get back to you as quick as possible. So once again, that's www.bluelife.ai and Adelan and I both look forward to working together with you. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you back here on the show because I literally just got off the phone with John Langford, who is our guest for today's episode. So what you need to know about John is that he's a very influential research scientist in the space of machine learning. He's got dozens of published papers, which you can find on archive. He constantly gives talks at different conferences. For instance, just before this conversation, he had returned from the ICML, International Conference for Machine Learning, where he gave not one, not two, but three talk, uh, talks uh, during the course of this event, of this seven-day event. Um, he also contributes lots of open source code to the online machine learning community. Uh, he's got a wonderful tool that he's been developing uh, for many years, uh, which is called Vopal Webit, and uh, we'll talk about that during the podcast as well. And he also works for Microsoft. So as you can imagine, this podcast in the, on this podcast, John and I could delve into quite some deep topics, and that's exactly what happened. We dove deep into things like unsupervised, supervised learning, reinforcement learning, the differences between the three, the advantages, disadvantages, contextual bandits. You will learn so much about contextual bandits in this podcast. In fact, I felt like a student during this podcast. I was learning from John, absorbing all this knowledge, and I found it extremely interesting. Uh, in addition to that, we talked about applications of contextual bandits and reinforcement learning in general, YOLO-style alg algorithms versus simulator algorithms, techniques for avoiding local optimums, uh, balance between exploration and explo exploitation, a learning dissearch, active learning, one-shot learning, deep reinforcement learning, and many, many more topics. So a very interesting uh, podcast, especially if you've been waiting for one with somebody who's on the forefront of research, someone who can give you like the most freshest and most revolutionary updates in the space. And that is John. And this is your podcast to listen to. So without further ado, I bring to you machine learning research scientist, John Langford. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you here on the show. And today's guest is John Langford, pulling in from New York. John, how are you going today? I'm all right. Uh, fantastic. Well, you just came back from LA. Um, how was your trip over there? I was visiting ICML, uh, International Conference on Machine Learning. Mm -hmm. It was fun. Uh, the uh, conference is now seven days long, which is quite large, but uh, there's a lot of good things to go on. Mm. Did you give a talk or were you just attending listening to others? I gave several talks. Wow. Uh, what were the talks yeah. about? Well, the first one was on the first day, which was Sunday, the first Sunday that I was there. Mm -hmm. uh, this was 
part of the industry expo day mm-hmm. where we're talking about this new uh, personalizer service and the technology behind it in terms of contextual bandits. Mm-hmm. And then I, I gave another talk in the real world reinforcement learning workshop uh, on Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. That was about, I guess, how you need to shift your priorities in order to do research, which is useful for real world applications. What does that mean? Shift your priorities in, in terms of what? Yeah. So many people in reinforcement learning work in a uh, simulated environments mm-hmm. and, uh, they would like to do things in the real world, but they sort of, they don't have experience with that. Mm-hmm. So I was discussing how you need to change your priorities a little bit when you're working in real world environments. Okay, so like less simulations, more real-world data? Yes, not just real-world data, but real-world data sources Mm. uh, to an extent. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, uh, uh, like um, web traffic and conversions on a website, something like that, or less? Absolutely, yeah, that'd be a very common exemplar. Okay, okay, gotcha. So two talks, was that's already a lot in seven days. Would you give another one? Yes, on um, Saturday night, mm-hmm. I gave a talk at the LAML meetup. Mm-hmm. What was that one about? That one was also about um, kind of applying or doing real-world reinforcement learning. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. Okay, cool. And so how th- that's like a very busy week, and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, especially after such a big week. And... Uh, also, uh, the the flight from LA to New York. Um, so, is that is that like your core passion? Like it, it, a lot of the things that I've read about you and your work, which is fantastic. Oh, by the way, I forgot to say congratulations on the award that you won just recently. Like you shared with me a few hours ago. How how was that? Like, how did you feel about that? Thank you. Um, I mean, seems great. The, the uh, decision service that we've been working on, uh, so I, I believe it'll be a big transformation in how machine learning is actually deployed in the world as it becomes used more and more often. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a question of the scope of application of learning uh, paradigms. Supervised learning is a very easy paradigm in, in terms of being statistically safe. But uh, reinforcement learning, I think, will become a more dominant paradigm in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is the first service uh, enabling that, which, you know, hopefully gets a lot of traction. Mm-hmm. And so, what I, as I was saying, I, as I understand from your biography and all, or from your, the information available about you online or your work, reinforcement learning is, is kind of like your core passion. Is that about right? Yes, that's right. I still do a lot of other things of one sort or another. So, for example, to NIPS, we submitted an active learning paper and a neural architecture search paper. But I feel like reinforcement learning is where the really revolutionary stuff is happening right now. Why is that? It's because reinforcement learning is a very fundamental natural paradigm for learning. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you think about kind of where supervised learning gets applied in nature. Well, it gets applied with with people to a fair extent and perhaps with sort of social animals where they kind of demonstrate uh, to each other how to do things. Mm-hmm. But if you think about reinforcement learning, well, reinforcement learning gets applied all the way down to like the worm level mm-hmm. where worms learn to avoid and seek various things based upon reinforcement signals. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So what's... What I'd like to ask is you're identifying two main areas, supervised learning and reinforcement learning. How about unsupervised learning, such as, um, I don't know, self-organizing maps, Boltzmann machines, uh, autoencoders? They they don't fall under either of those categories, is that, or am I getting something wrong? You're right, it doesn't fall under those categories. Uh, In terms of... So I guess unsupervised learning is something where we lack a strong understanding at a, at a 
at a theoretical level of where it's useful. Mm-hmm. So uh, something I tend to uh, overlook it. There are times, of course, that unsupervised learning has been very helpful to me. Mm-hmm. Like when? Hmm. When you want to build a, a profile of something. So I'm thinking of LDA, or latent Dirichlet allocation, mm-hmm. where you want to uh, kind of summarize the topic in a document across a set of topics and a set of documents. You don't know what the topics are in advance, and yet, nevertheless, you can kind of explain the topics in the document using LDA. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, gotcha. That, that can be a very useful summary of these documents. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So basically, un- unsupervised learning doesn't have that uh, evident range of applications as do supervised or even more so reinforcement learning. So unsupervised learning is in some sense extremely natural because uh, you don't require any kind of label or reward source. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that it's sort of undirected by default, mm-hmm. which means that it's hard to understand how it will benefit you other than just trying it. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so, particularly in a high-dimensional space, think about clustering. It's easy to cluster things. In, there may be multiple possible clusterings that are available, and maybe only one of them is actually uh, relevant to what you, how you want to apply it. Mm-hmm. And you have to iterate to in order to find that one and actually apply some sort of domain knowledge in order to identify what that one is. Yeah, so I guess I'm thinking about something like clustering in image space, right? So you have a megapixel camera, and it could be that uh, you would like to naturally cluster, you know, the dogs separate from the cats. Mm -hmm. But instead, just because of the way clustering works, you end up clustering the darker pictures from the lighter pictures, mm-hmm. right? And so guiding an unsupervised learning algorithm to come to a good solution is is a relatively ad hoc process. Okay. While for supervised learning and reinforcement learning, or at least some forms of reinforcement learning, it seems like we can just kind of mechanistically solve these things or near mechanistically solve them. We, can, we, we have a, a paradigm for how to think about how to solve these things, which is much more complete. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Uh, however, at the same time, for, from, uh, for me, I think like unsupervised learning borders closer on the line of creative thinking in terms of machines. For instance, if we take, uh, like I completely agree with your example of the images and dogs and cats. Indeed, that that could be a, an outcome. Probably would be the outcome. But if we take a different example of, for instance, where we have um, customers in um, a company with uh, we have like a hundred different fields for each customer, explaining their you know from their social demographic status to their recent transactions to their preferences uh, to basically all the information that is available on these customers. And if we, like a a clustering and unsupervised uh, algorithm in this case could be very useful in terms of identifying groups of customers that we, even through domain knowledge, we cannot identify uh, in such a multidimensional space. Whereas if we apply clustering, we might come up with a few very interesting insights in our data and then use that clustering to further, to then in the future, turn it into classification, and then it becomes supervised. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think this is a a common approach to things. I think it can often be a a good, sane, first-pass approach to things. Mm. I guess my experience is that it's not what you end up doing in the long term. Mm -hmm. So let me give you an an, uh, example of this. Uh, The very first applied contextual benefits paper was back when I was at Yahoo Research. 
Mm-hmm. We were doing this for personalized news, right? Mm-hmm. And the way it worked was we clustered users into five different segments. Mm-hmm. And then we basically personalized to the individual segment. Mm-hmm. So this, this worked. It, it did give some performance improvement. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, it, you're sort of bottlenecking the information available to, to con- the contextual bandit algorithm through the segmentation. Mm-hmm. So you would prefer to expose more information to the contextual bandit algorithm uh, rather than just the segmentation from the induced by the clustering. So maybe, maybe that segmentation is a useful feature that you would want to augment the information, the, the profile of the users you're suggesting mm-hmm. with. But at the same time, giving the algorithms access to uh, the raw information, the, the pre-unsupervised learning information, can result in a higher ceiling on your performance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very, very interesting. Thank you for breaking that down. Um, and so moving back to reinforcement learning versus supervised learning, you really believe that the future is behind reinforcement learning. Um, is it mostly because it, it is, like you said, we can it more mechanically implement it with the whole reward systems and we don't need those massive labeled data sets beforehand. Or is there some other massive advantage that I'm missing? So not needing uh, label data is, is obviously a huge win because you eliminate a large amount of difficulty from applying uh, a learning approach. Mm-hmm. I think there's also just a, a pure scope of application there are many situations where you, you just can't label data effectively. You have to learn from rewards. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about, let's think about personalized news again, because I was talking about that before. Mm-hmm. So I, I've seen people try to do supervised learning for personalized news. And uh, you, you, editors just don't really know what people are that interested in. Mm. Right? Um, they, they, have some, uh, they have a good general sense of what might be interesting. But a specific sense of, of, you know, this user is interested in this article is just lacking because all they know about a user is some previous browsing history at most. Mm-hmm. And that, that's just not a very strong indicator um, for an, an individual editor. Mm-hmm. Right, so an example I give in my talks is would an article about Ukraine be interesting to me? Mm-hmm. Kind of hard to say. I haven't actually looked at a news story about Ukraine in a while. And yet, it turns out I would be interested because my wife is from Ukraine. Mm. Right? And so this inability to uh, have the information necessary to answer the problem is endemic to a lot of kind of personalization scenarios. And then you just need an algorithm which just directly directly learns from the interaction rather than learning from editorial labels. Okay, and so how would reinforcement learning solve this uh, challenge with your wife, be, well, with not knowing that your wife is from Ukraine? Yeah, so in reinforcement learning, you would have an algorithm that kind of explores of alternatives to some extent. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, then based upon the outcome of different choices you get some sort of reinforcement feedback Mm -hmm. and then based on that reinforcement feedback over the explored alternatives you can learn to choose the alternative which is best Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so So there would be some iterative process not just iterative you uh, i mean for the news application you do it in near real time Mm -hmm. so um, MSN is uh, another project where we were playing with this, and we were we dropped a new model every five or ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Let, let me give a little bit more detail here. You're you're trying to do reinforcement learning. We're going to limit ourselves to essentially only trying to optimize the immediate reward, which is a special case of reinforcement learning called contextual bandits. Mm-hmm. 
So you, you're going to have an online learning system, which is has a constant stream of events coming into it. Mm. And you're going to checkpoint uh, the model. So step back. You're doing online learning. That means that you're looking at an example, you're updating your model, and then you're dropping the example. So you basically don't have the luxury of running your model through a training data set and a test data set, finalizing a model and deploying it. You have to, the model has to learn as you go. Yeah, so then there's, there's two reasons here. Uh, one reason is partly computational. There's actually quite a lot of data associated with some of these data feeds. Mm -hmm. uh, another reason is um, that the, the problem is very non-stationary. Mm -hmm. So the set of news articles that are of interest is changing on an hourly basis. And then, uh, yeah. So we're, we're running through, we're, we look at every individual example, and then we're just checkpointing the model every five or 10 minutes, and then, you know, using that model to make the decisions for the next five or 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Ah, okay, I see, gotcha, all right. Right? Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So that's, that's, uh, that's super effective in my experience. It, um, I know of dozens of applications of this sort, which are, um, of significant value. Okay, and they're going to be applied in many different areas of business. Like one example we just gave was the um, optimization of, for instance, uh, conversion rates for ads on websites or YouTube and so on. But there's just one example. There's there's plenty of applications. Are are there any very you know, if applications in business or industry that stand out to you that you could name, like classic examples that you use in your talks, for instance? So I've seen examples of applying contextual bands in ads, as you suggested, in uh, content recommendation of various sorts, in web page layout, in, uh, in bots, where you kind of uh, you use contextual bands to to given the context of the conversation, help choose the next uh, element of the conversation. I've seen it used in, oh, wellness is a very big example as well. So in statistics, uh, there's quite a bit of literature on nudging people into healthier habits. Mm. So uh, do you tell somebody uh, you should really walk another uh, 10,000 steps or do you say, hey, your neighbor walked 10,000 more steps? There's two different ways to get a message across. And um, for individual people, they respond in different ways. So you want to personalize it. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's kind of the, the scope of personalization applications that I've seen. But there's also, it's a, it's a very natural paradigm. So there are other kinds of applications where you're trying to optimize systems, for example. Yeah, the systems, processes within the business, like operations or uh, flows within a factory and things like that. So I haven't seen flows within a factory. I would suspect that for flows within a factory, you really need to go beyond contextual bandits because there's a lot of state in a factory. Mm -hmm. But I have seen uh, examples of using contextual bandits for um, so I think often in, in an application, you have some parameter you need to tune, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And you don't know how to tune this, uh, but, but nevertheless, you can sort of determine after the fact whether or not you had a good tuning. Mm -hmm. And then you can start to apply these techniques in order to help you do that tuning. Nice. So basically, you could use reinforcement learning or contextual bandits to tune hyperparameters of uh, other artificial intelligence models that you're building. You can. I haven't seen it be useful in that particular application, but I have seen it be useful um, to think about applications where you're trying to make a uh, ambiguous decision. Mm -hmm. um, what's a good example? Uh, so, like, let's say you have a warehouse and you you build a simulator for the warehouse, and you have uh, you know the floor space and, and how many trucks are coming in, how many. Uh, employees are working at that warehouse in order to sort all the inventory that's coming in, something like that. I wouldn't want to apply contextual balance there because this is, again, a stateful question. 
I have seen contextual bandits applied to things like how long do you wait for a so when in the cloud when you have a virtual machine that uh, becomes non-responsive, you could immediately restart a new virtual machine to take its place, uh -huh. or you could wait for it to become responsive. How long do you wait? Uh -huh. Right. Um, so that, it's it's a kind of decision where after the fact you could kind of say what the right decision would have been if you waited long enough, but you don't necessarily want to wait long enough in order to, to be able to determine what the right decision would have been in respect. Instead, if it's, if it's not, if it's never coming back, you want to just immediately restart. If it is going to come back after a minute or two, if that's typical behavior, then you would like to wait, just wait a minute or two because that's a lower overhead than restarting the VM. Okay, gotcha. So, well, uh, to in order to understand contextual bandits a bit better, uh, could you give us a maybe a, an overview? What's the difference between a contextual bandit and a normal bandit? So, a normal bandit. So, the, first of all, let's start with a nomenclature. Mm -hmm. um, where does bandit come from? The, bandit comes from kind of a, a theoretical model. Mm -hmm where you're going to uh, Las Vegas and you have um, you have these these machines they call bandits where you uh, slot machines where you, you put money in you, you pull the, the arm and you uh, you see what kind of performance you get out or, or what kind of reward you get mm -hmm. right and then a multi-arm bandit is one where you have multiple uh, possible choices that you can make and then a contextual bandit is essentially a multi-arm bandit where you have context features available to help you make that decision. Mm -hmm. So in terms of applications, I think there are some applications where you can benefit from just normal bandits, but typically you benefit much more from having a context. And in general, it just kind of seems uh, wasteful to not use context when it's available. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So, for instance, somebody lands on your website, uh, like we, we're not even talking about A-B testing anymore. Instead of like A-B testing six different ads, you can apply a normal bandit and, you know, just through lots and lots of people going through the website, lots of results, you can see which ad works the best out of the six. Or you can apply a contextual bandit and actually use some information you might have about this user, for instance, the web page they came from, or um, I don't know that the time zone they're in, or the browser or mobile or versus desktop. You know that type of context, and that yeah. can help inform your choice of ad. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Um, Interesting, interesting. So uh, I'm, I'm curious though, with that example I gave with the warehouse, why wouldn't you apply a contextual bandit there? Uh, what kind of other reinforcement learning would you rather apply in that situation? Yeah, so this is related to one of my pet peeves actually, mm -hmm. which I want to explain in a little bit de of detail. Um, there's kind of a weird split in the world between researchers in reinforcement learning and people who want to use reinforcement learning to solve applications. Mm -hmm. So for a researcher doing reinforcement learning, uh, their goal is to use a YOLO paradigm. You only live once. Mm -hmm. So you have an agent working in a world. It's kind of observing things in the world. It's getting feedbacks now and then about success or failure, and the goal is to kind of maximize the performance of the agent. Mm -hmm. So so that's that's an admirable research goal. I think that's kind of a description of an AI agent in some sense. Uh, at the same time, when people are studying reinforcement learning, they're often doing this with simulators these days. So when you have a simulator, you have the ability to reset and try an alternative. And that ability to reset and try an alternative is actually dramatically powerful. So in order to understand why, you need to think a little bit about opportunity cost. So if you go left at some point and get some reward, 
in a in a YOLO setting where you only live once, you have to kind of estimate the value that you would have gotten if you had gone right, and then trade that off against what you observed when you went left. But in a simulator, you could reset and you could go right. And then you could directly observe what you get if you go right. And then you can directly know what would have been better going right or left. And you can use that to drive a learning process at the decision point. Mm-hmm. So you see this funny thing where people are really excited about reinforcement learning because it's it's been used to solve Go, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they really want to apply reinforcement learning algorithms, and yet they're in a simulator where they could apply much more powerful algorithms. So, uh, so the, the YOLO style algorithms are things like DQN and A3C and uh, policy gradient, these kinds of things. The, the algorithms which really use a simulator are actually like the solution to Go, the alpha star, or this learning to search stuff that uh, I worked on with Hal Down. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see. So if you're in a simulator, so basically reinforcement learning is much more powerful or useful if you're doing things online where you don't have the luxury of resetting. If you're in a simulator, there's probably better ways like in the example i gave with the warehouse is probably better ways than reinforcement learning of solving that problem finding the optimal solution there's a little bit of a naming issue here because the definition of reinforcement learning has kind of expanded over time Mm -hmm. so researchers are very interested in the yolo style reinforcement learning Mm -hmm. but uh many applications that people are nowadays calling reinforcement learning are more sim or things like AlphaGo, mm-hmm. uh, where you have uh, you have a simulator, and and that enables you to do things that are well beyond the YOLO paradigm and very powerful in terms of how rapidly you can learn. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Wow, this is very some very deep. <laughs> considerations about reinforcement learning didn't even think of it that way um what about hitting a local extremum in reinforcement learning you know like um getting stuck at a local maximum uh, of like all that's a solution that seems optimal but actually isn't in the global scheme of things um how do reinforcement learning algorithms step sidestep that problem Okay, so a common answer is they don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's only specific sub-pieces of reinforcement learning which avoid local, uh, optimiz- local optima problems. Mm-hmm. So let me tell you several techniques for avoiding local optima problems. One of them is... Uh, if you can turn things into a contextual bandit, and there is sort of no local optimal issue because you're going to be exploring over alternatives, and then there's a, a technique where you you importance weight things. So if you if you explore something rarely, then what you discover when you explore it is treated as very important by the learning algorithm, and that means that you're going to drive for the global optima amongst all the actions available. Mm-hmm. Okay, so another technique which is available, uh, so this is with the uh, learning to search, which I mentioned earlier. If you have at training time a reference policy which can get you into the basin of the global optima, then you can use that reference policy at training time to guide the learning process over, uh, over multiple decisions to, uh, to learn to operate in the local optima, and then you can use reinforcement feedback to uh, fine-tune it to reach the actual global optima. Wow, that one sounds really <laughs> complex. Uh, yeah, but uh, it actually addresses the temporal credit assignment problem, the, which move lost the game. 
problem. So it, it, it's, it's very useful. And then there's, uh, there's an even more complex one that we've been working on. It's mostly theory, but we do know that if you have a, an underlying state space, which is not too large, so a set of possible ways the world is, is not too large, then you can explore that underlying state space efficiently and you can then solve for a near-optimal policy. So the first paper of this sort was called E-cubed, Explore, Exploit, I forget what the other E is, but uh, it, it's an algorithm which kind of deliberately explores a markup decision process in order to find the optimal policy. And then recently we've been trying to figure out how to make these algorithms work with a rich feature space. So there's a, a series of papers. Um, the last one was at this ICML about contextual decision processes, where you have a you have context features, and there's an underlying state space which generates these features, but you don't know what that generation process is, and still you can uh, engage in controlled exploration to find the globally optimal policy. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You mentioned a couple of times uh, exploration and exploitation. Um, yeah. So a very important concept, I think, and uh, reinforcement learning really stands out in that sense. For instance, opposed to that A-B test that I mentioned previously, A-B tests, they, they simply explore. There's no exploitation. They're integrated. And so you have to wait until your A-B test is done, and then you pick your a solution and then you exploit it. Whereas reinforcement learning combines the two, exploration and exploitation. What, what are your comments on, you know, from the research that you've done, how to find that optimal balance between exploration and exploitation? Ah, yeah, that's a really fun one. So uh, finding the optimal balance, first of all, is actually pretty subtle. Uh, so for example, just with the contextual bandits, which is a very simple, version of reinforcement learning, we knew it was possible to get something which was very good statistically. We didn't know how to do that in a completely efficient manner for a long time. So that we, we did figure out how to do, solve this, but that was in 2014. Let me tell you the flavor of the strategy that is used to give you a sense of that. Mm -hmm. So it's a covering strategy. What we're going to do is we're going to learn multiple models and we're going to, uh, these models are, the question is how do these models differ? So the models differ by, by training them to avoid the predictions of the other mm. and also training them to, uh, minimize or maximize your reward or, or minimize your cost. Mm -hmm. So maybe 99% you maximize reward, 1% you train them to differ. Uh -huh. And now that, that creates a, a variation in the models. And if you choose one of those models randomly to act according to, you get a, a good solution. Mm -hmm. This is, this is the covering strategy. You're trying to kind of, cover the space of of good of plausible good decisions uh, effectively okay and so that helps with uh, finding or balancing out that exploration versus exploitation yeah so essentially what's going to happen here is you're only going to choose actions which good models choose mm -hmm. and you're going to uh you're going to try to, to choose as broadly amongst a set oh, of good actions as possible. I got you. Right? So you're kind of like every time you choose an action, you're picking a new model at random. Yeah, that's oh, right. Okay. And then because you've trained them at 1% to differ from each other, you, you achieve that variety of actions. So basically, even though the models might be over-exploiting, overall you by you using multiple models and a new model or like a random model every time 
you're building in the exploration into that part of the process. Yes, that's right. Wow, that's that's really cool. It's a simple solution, yeah, when you think about it that way. Yeah, so so that's at the contextual bandit level. Mm -hmm. uh, another, so that is relatively well solved. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a, the corner of reinforcement learning, which is most well solved. If you're looking at um, something which involves uh, temporal credit assignment, uh, which move lost the game type of reinforcement learning, then uh, you have to consider the entire sequence of actions. Mm -hmm. And now um, it's not super clear what the best strategy is. So people have pretty much solved the Markov decision process setting. So in the Markov decision process, you get an explicit enumeration of the state. And then you can prove that you can essentially build a model of the world in a with, with, with relatively few samples by planning to escape the portion of the world that you know to reach the portion of the world that you don't and gathering information and then building further. Mm -hmm. Right. So that, that, that's an effective strategy. But the problem is that uh, in the real world, you don't really have state in any meaningful sense. You tend to have features, which may be, may have all the information of a state, but it typically has much, much more information as well. Mm -hmm. And so think about using a, like a megapixel camera for uh, a sensor, right? So megapixel camera may identify where you are in your local environment very well. And yet it tells you a whole lot more information. And furthermore, because your local environment changes in minor ways all the time, you never actually get the same image twice. Mm -hmm. And now, given that you don't have the same image twice, the question is, how do you, well, okay, so obviously the market decision process approaches don't work. And then you have a subtle problem of trying to figure out kind of the underlying state space, which is, I think, where a lot of the fun research is right now. Wow. Sounds, sounds like a lot of fun. And this is really on the forefront of reinforcement learning and um, is that is that uh, the research was was the research that you got the award for was that just uh, the recent one or was that about uh, like somewhere in this space about uh, reinforcement learning and the temporal allocation assignment problem temporal credit assignment no problem? no the the award was really for the contextual bandits mm -hmm. and then contextual bandits I think is is pretty unique in the sense that it's dramatically expanding the scope of problems that we can just directly solve with machine learning techniques, mm -hmm. right? And uh, turning that into a system has been my project of the last uh, like four or five years. Okay, all right. And uh, is, so how does all of this, the, the research that you do, link up to the work that you do at Microsoft currently? Um, is that all encapsulated in a product that is offered um, or is it just in the nature of the research itself is driving forward a Microsoft product? So there's not a one-to-one a -one mapping between research and products. I think in research, you're typically looking into a lot of different things and only a, a small fraction of those are actually directly useful for research. Mm -hmm. But there are, okay, so let me tell you my approach here. My approach is consulting is kind of fun and interesting. You learn things about what people are working on. But if you really want to have impact, I think you need to do it through a platform. Mm -hmm. right? And uh, so far, I've worked on platforms at two levels. One level is we have this Wabbit open source project, which has a lot of the research that I've worked in, uh, in algorithmic form. Uh, it gets used by many, many companies and so forth. Uh, so that's, that's, that's very useful in terms of uh, getting things into a usable form. But it's not enough to, to really have a, a big impact compared to what you might imagine is possible. Mm -hmm. 
to have a really big impact, you need to have a complete system. And I'm going to distinguish between kind of the, the learning algorithm, which is a small component of a complete system, and the, and the complete system overall. So the decision service that we worked on is now embodied in this uh, personalizer service at, uh, in Azure. The personalizer service is made to personalize pretty much anything that you might want to try to personalize. It has a very basic interface where you, you feed in features, you get out an action, and then you f later feed in a reward. Oh, okay, so like a template for reinforcement learning, like a template approach. It's not just a, a template because there's an active backend that joins the reward to the individual event mm -hmm. and then puts those into a log, which you can download or use, but, but also which enables online reinforcement learning, online contextual bandit learning. So basically any business or even individual could come and use this personalizer, personalized service in order to uh, create a reinforce or like make reinforcement learning come to life in their specific problem that they're dealing with, even if it's an online problem. Yes, that's right. Mm. And so, so this kind of dramatically lowers the barrier to entry. For sure. So the first time that we tried to do any kind of personalization, it was like a six month project with multiple people. This could turn it into uh, essentially a, a one day project, mm. mm -hmm. right? Where you deploy it on your website and you start using it. Yeah, and makes it uh, oh, like self-service, right? Somebody can just, as I understand, set it up That's for right. themselves. That's right, that's right. Uh, does this service have a, a name in case any of our listeners are interested? Yeah, it's the Azure Cognitive Services Personalizer. Mm -hmm. It's right. uh, using Vopal Wabbit underneath. Uh -huh. And you can actually do things like download the log, play with it, uh, figure out what the right parameters are, and then send t tell the service which parameters to use. Uh -huh. So it's the Azure Cognitive Services Personalizer. Yes. Okay. Very, very interesting. Uh, and tell us a bit about uh, Vopal Wabbit. I'm yeah. having trouble pronouncing it. Why, why that name for started? Uh, have you ever seen uh, Monty Python in the Search for the Holy Grail? Uh, not, not that one, no. I've heard of Monty Python. Like It's a, uh, okay. a comedy so, group, right? Uh, we probably can't do it right now, but uh, if you get a chance, go to YouTube. And search for Monty Python Killer Rabbit. Uh -huh. There's an excellent scene there, which uh, still makes me laugh, even after seeing it quite a number of times. So that, that was uh, one of the inspirations. Um, there's actually three inspirations here. Uh -huh. I was also raised on Bugs Bunny, um, where uh, Elmer Fudd tends to lisp his things a little bit. Uh -huh. And then there's also a poem um, called Jabberwocky. Do you know this one? Uh, nope. Okay, so this is an old Lewis Carroll poem. It, it's a, a really, it's a pretty fascinating poem because it has a bunch of words that don't otherwise exist. Uh -huh. And yet still you can understand what is being said in the poem. Uh -huh. Anyway, one of them was a, a vorpal sword. <laughs> uh, so it's, a, it's like a, a fast killer rabbit yeah. that uh, solves your problems. Okay, okay, gotcha. All right, and so this project you've been working on for years now, is that right? That's right, yeah. And um, how did it all come to be, and what has it turned into over the years? It's like, and in a nutshell, if you were to describe Bopal Wabbit, what what is it? It's an online learning system. Mm -hmm. uh, online, it's, it's a, a bunch of online learning algorithms and some mechanisms for deploying them. Gosh, and it's uh, I can see it's available on GitHub. It says it's all open source. That's right, yeah. Fantastic. Okay, and so how did the idea come to be and what has it, how has it grown over the years? Well, I started this in a little over a decade ago, I think. Mm -hmm. And the basic observation at the time, which is still largely true today, is that there wasn't a good alternative platform available for online learning. Mm -hmm. right, so I think, I think Batch learning either unsupervised batch or 
uh, supervised batch learning are, are, are pretty common. Uh, they've become much more common in the last decade. But for online learning, uh, this process of kind of consuming an example, using it, and then moving on to the next one, there, was, there were many algorithms that, that people were studying, and yet there was no platform for actually uh, deploying them or using them or, or even coding them up. Mm-hmm. So uh, how does it really start? So way back in the day when I was at Yahoo Research, there was an internal competition where uh, people were looking at click prediction for ads. So I, I don't entirely like click prediction as a framing, but nevertheless, you know, it seemed like a fun thing to play with. So we looked into that and the, the original code for VW was built around that. So there are tricks there that you don't see elsewhere. You, there was hashing, which has become much more common. And there was also um, online learning, which has also become much more common, mostly through VW. Mm-hmm. The, so the system performed great, but I also learned a lesson. Turns out that the, uh, the, the system that actually ended up being used at Yahoo uh, was from, by some people on the West Coast who were, of course, right next to the people doing the competition. Mm-hmm. All right, so, uh, all right, so what do I do at that point? Well, Yahoo was fairly open source. They didn't really care about it, so I asked them to open source it, and that is how the open source version of VW first started. Oh, very cool. So over the years, it's become kind of a repository of many research algorithms that don't exist elsewhere. So there's capabilities in VW which which you may not be familiar with. So there's this contextual bandits, which we discussed. There's learning to search, which we also discussed. There's active learning, which is where you're trying to do supervised learning, but the the algorithm is asking for labels for for the examples unlabeled examples that it chooses mm-hmm. there's also extreme classification so maybe you want to choose one of a million possibilities or one of a billion possibilities how do you do that mm-hmm. well certainly i don't know about one in a billion but one in a million you can easily do with vw mm-hmm. and we have uh, several papers on this another is that's very recent is uh, contextual memory tree paper. So maybe you want to actually be able to pull up previous instances to, to remember them and use them explicitly. Mm-hmm. It turns out you can do that. Uh, and and it, it's very useful to do this when you're in sort of a, a one-shot learning scenario. So one-shot learning is where you have maybe a single example to learn from. And now you want to pull up the right example when you're trying to answer some query. Mm-hmm. Okay. And all of that is in Vopal Web. Yeah. Wow. It's grown, grown a lot. <laughs> very, very interesting. And um, speaking of all these different areas, you know, from uh, learning to search to active learning, one-shot learning, contextual bandits, what are your plans for future research? Like you've you've already gone in so many areas. Is there any area that specifically excites you that you're looking at for the next year or two years? Well, the thing which excites me the most at the moment is really solving contextual decision processes. Mm-hmm. So it should be the case that if the underlying state space is not too large, even though you're, you're observing something which is very complex, you can effectively learn to explore and exploit uh, in that system. Mm-hmm. So exactly how to do that, we're working on. We, uh, we have more on the way beyond the papers that are already out. And I believe we could see a, a dramatic change in our capabilities in the near future. Gotcha. Wow, very exciting, very exciting. And what what role does um, deep reinforcement learning play in all of this? So deep here typically refers to having a a circuit-like representation with neural networks Mm -hmm. rather than uh, 
uh, using a decision tree or a linear predictor or something like that. Mm-hmm. So when you're in working in the real world, often you have to learn very rapidly, which means that you don't have the time to tune some sort of uh, deep neural network. Mm-hmm. Now, what can happen, which what I've seen be very useful many times, is you sort of train your deep representation using some auxiliary data source. And then you use that trained representation to enable you to do very fast learning um, uh, when you actually deploy things in the real world. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, So basically there is a space for uh, deep reinforcement learning in in this whole um, plethora of different algorithms. Oh, yeah. So everything that I've talked about is actually representation agnostic. Mm -hmm. So the representation you choose to use is whatever is appropriate to your problem. Mm -hmm. Right. So if the appropriate representation for your problem is a deep reinforcement learning representation or a deep representation, then you use that. If the appropriate representation is something linear, then maybe use that. If it's a boosted decision tree, then you use that. Whatever is most appropriate. Gotcha. Okay. Understood. Um, all right. All right. And uh, what, what would your recommendations be to somebody who's, you know, been super excited by this podcast and the very passionate or they feel passion for this topic for reinforcement learning feel that this could be something you can get into how would you advise a data scientist or somebody starting out into the field of data science or even somebody who's been in the data science space for a while but wants to now explore reinforcement learning how would you advise them to take the first steps into this space yeah so there's several different kinds of goals people might have if you are interested in uh, this personalizer system, as in you want to deploy things, then there's a, a workshop we gave during the Industry Expo Day at this last ICML. So you can look that up. There are slides, there are pointers to more documents and so forth, and, and that, that can give you uh, quite a bit of purchase in actually applying it. Mm-hmm. If you want to understand the core technology behind contextual bandits. There's a tutorial that I did with Alec Agarwal a couple of years ago at ICML. Mm-hmm. So that's at hunch.net slash tilde L2S. Mm-hmm. No, sorry, sorry, that's the wrong one. Slash tilde, hunch.net slash tilde RWIL, real world in, uh, interactive learning. Mm-hmm. And then if you are interested in using a simulator, I would recommend looking into um, the AlphaGo, uh, AlphaGo Zero algorithms, and also looking into the learning to search algorithms. So for the learning to search algorithms, that's at hunch.net slash tilde L2S. There's a tutorial that Hal Daum and I gave about four years ago. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, thank you for all the resources. We'll definitely include them in the show notes. So that's a workshop a tutorial and another tutorial and yeah. yeah they'll be all available for they're they're all available for free online yeah yeah that's wonderful fantastic and what's apart from those workshops which i'm i'm sure people are going to who are excited about reinforcement learning are going to check out apart from those where else is a good idea for somebody to follow you follow your career maybe get updates on any research that you're doing so i have a blog which is hunch.net Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, uh, all my papers I try to put in archive, so archive.org. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And is it okay for our listeners to connect with you on LinkedIn as well? Yeah, sure. Fantastic. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's it's been a pleasure. I've personally felt like a student here today. Learned so much from you, and I'm sure our listeners got plenty of takeaways as well. All right. Thank you. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, that was machine learning research scientist John Langford and also the founder and creator of 
uh, Vopal Wabbit. Hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did and got some very valuable takeaways. Uh, a lot of it was quite in-depth, quite complex, so don't beat yourself up if you didn't, you know, if some parts didn't really actually click. For me, I feel like I need to go some and do some reading in order to understand some of these concepts that John uh, so generously shared on this episode. Um, and of course, we will share all of the links, all of the materials or links to materials mentioned on this episode, such as John's workshops and tutorials in the show notes. You can find the show notes at www.superdatascience.com slash 275. So that's superdatascience.com slash 275. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't just keep it to yourself. Share the love, spread the word, share this episode with somebody who you know is interested in machine learning or specifically in the field of reinforcement learning. As you heard from John, it's an up and coming or really drastically expanding field in the machine learning space that has the potential to solve lots and lots of problems. So if you know any data scientists or machine learning experts that could benefit from this knowledge, then go ahead and share with them the link superdatascience.com slash 275 so they can also check out this podcast. And on that note, thank you so much for being here and spending some time with us. I look forward to seeing you back here next time. Until then, happy analyzing.